Good morning, church. Uh, it's been a blessed time just to, again, fellowship with you all and get to know you more and just to talk about this so important topic of stewardship. And I'm just thankful for the, the time we were able to have in God's Word already. We talked about stewardship as servants, stewardship in the context of wisdom and walking in it. Uh, last night, stewardship in the context of work. And today, I want to look at stewardship um, in light of eternity, in light of eternity. So with that being said, please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke 16. Luke 16, and we're going to look at verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Let me read this for us, and I'll pray, and we'll get right to the sermon. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we ask for humble hearts, hearts that recognize that these words are the words of the living God, that we serve an eternal God who is holy and just, but a gracious God who calls sinners to himself. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us an eternal perspective when it comes to stewardship, that we would long to use our lives for your glory, that you would be honored and most pleased with how we live and how we stewarded our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, as we have just read, you would notice that this passage speaks much about the realities of hell, a topic that surely should cause any of us to sober up, to wake us up uh, to the realities that life, as we know it, it will one day come to an end. And there is eternity at hand. But in our modern evangelicalism today, this topic of hell is one that seems to be avoided and not talked about because it's not very comfortable. I mean, why speak about something so harsh? Well, why not focus more on love and God's care and being positive? Therefore, what we will find are often pulpits who refuse to talk about the realities of hell. I mean, there are even movements who actually claim that if there is a love from God, there is no existence of hell. But church, does our uneasiness of a topic like this make this invalid? Of course not. If anything, we must, we must know not what man has to say about hell, but God, what he has revealed through his word. In fact, the one person that spoke the most about hell in the scriptures is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, was a hellfire preacher. He loved people. He had compassion for the lost. And he was not shy to warn people about the realities of hell. Our Lord, without reservation, preached about hell. And in our passage today, we will see one of the more vivid pictures that Jesus gives regarding the torments and horrors of hell. Now, to help you understand the context of Luke 16, Luke 16 really is centered around the theme of wealth and possessions. Luke, uh, he often writes thematically, and Luke 16 is surrounded around wealth and possessions. In fact, verse 13, I do believe, captures the very theme of this chapter where Jesus says, look there at verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. See, during this time, the Pharisees were considered those of the religious leaders of the day. Uh, they were the religious elites. They were the teachers of society. Uh, people looked up to them. And it was obvious that they were those who lived lavishly. They, they said they served God, but they loved wealth. They loved their life here. Which is why as Jesus is speaking, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. But Jesus, what does he say to them? Look at verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So with that context in mind, we turn to our passage today. And it's clear that this word is directed toward the Pharisees. A word intended to expose them that they would too repent and turn to God. And as you will see, it is a passage that absolutely demands our attention as well. Because as we will see in that same consistent theme of the proper use of wealth and possessions, this passage helps us to see that living for self 
living for my kingdom here on earth has eternal consequences. In other words, how we spend our wealth, how we use our possessions, how we use our resources, our time, how we steward our lives, it reveals. It reveals if you are a servant of God or an enemy of God. It reveals if you are in Christ or outside of Christ. It reveals if you are in a pathway to heaven or a pathway to hell. How we steward our lives has eternal consequences. Now, before we get into this passage, let me just note quickly some things regarding this. You must understand that this account here is not a true event that happened. Rather, it is a parable. It is a simple illustration that is meant to communicate a heavenly truth or reality, which is why what we find in this passage are elements that would most certainly be fictional. Uh, for example, as we will see, we will see there's a character in the parable from, who from Hades or from hell uh, looks upon those in heaven and cries out to them, which is something we don't necessarily see in the scriptures. So the question might be, what, what then is the point of saying something like this? Uh, why bring in such elements? Again, this is why we know this is a parable. And Jesus states things to these great lengths to communicate a divine point. So what is the divine point? Well, it's what I have titled this sermon. It is the shocking reversal. The shocking reversal. The reversal of what we see in life on earth versus life in eternity. In fact, if you have your notes with you, uh, those are our two points for today. Life on earth and life in eternity. With that being said, why don't we begin with the first point, life on earth. Life on earth. Let's look at verse 19 together. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Notice we are first introduced to a rich man. And this is not just any rich man, but he is filthy rich. How do we know this? Well, first, his riches are seen on his external, outward appearance. He makes it known that he is rich. As it states there, he is dressed in purple and fine linen. To let you know of the context of the day, purple was the color of royalty. And to get purple dye then was extremely costly. In fact, according to the context then, not only would his clothes have been imported from elsewhere, but the purple dye was from a rare and expensive sea mussel. And so this clothing was not only costly, but it required much labor to obtain it. Moreover, the fine linen that is stated there in the verse, it's, it describes this undergarment that he would have worn, which tells us that this guy not only looked good, but he felt good. He was feeling silky smooth every day. But did you also notice it wasn't that he wore this fit once in a while. It states this was habitual. Every day he wore this color purple. I mean, you would just look at the color purple and you would associate it with him. It's that guy. But furthermore, not only was his well seen in the appearance, but also in his way of life. Continuing the verse, it tells us he joyously lived in splendor every day. He lived it up every day. He lived for self every day. He got what he wanted. He spent 
He spent his money luxuriously on self. What a life. What a life of comfort. Daily doing as he pleases. I mean, objectively, we will look at such a man and say, that is a blessed man, right? He is joyful. He possesses much. He has no trials. He has a good life. Perhaps maybe some of us here would be envious of such a life. Or maybe that's the goal you are trying to reach. But while that is going on on one side, notice the contrast of this next individual. That commentators have called this the violent contrast. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. Now, when it says that he is poor, this literally means he is destitute. He has nothing. He is utterly hopeless and helpless. And right away, you would notice that unlike the rich man who didn't have a name, this guy has a name in the parable. His name is Lazarus. And his name here could, in fact, be significant to what Jesus is trying to communicate in this parable. In fact, that name means God helps. God helps which also indicates that Lazarus is a man who is not only helpless, but he is dependent upon God, okay? Notice, though, how destitute he really is. It says that he lies at the gate, and he lies there, not because he is lazy, but this indicates that he was one who was crippled, suggesting he was too sick to move. Not only is he crippled, but notice how much he is suffering. It states he has full of sores, meaning he has painful boils and ulcers around his body. He was miserable. I mean, I'm sure if we walk past this guy, we would close our eyes because it, there's a cringeworthiness by looking at this man, this uneasiness. Look at verse 21, continue. And Jesus says, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. In other words, this guy was starving. I mean, what do we crave? We crave all kinds of food. This guy craves the crumbs. The description here is almost graphic. He would have loved, meaning he would have had this strong desire to eat crumbs. But to top it off, this just really shows how desperate he really was. Verse 21 at the end, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And maybe some of you dog lovers are saying, wow, that is sweet. What a beautiful picture. It's not the case. (laughs) Because know this, back in these times, this was a disgusting picture. Dogs weren't man's best friends. They were scavengers. They were dirty. And here's Lazarus, so helplessly lying at the gate, with sores and boils all over his body, starving, and the dogs are licking his sores. Lazarus lies suffering at that gate. I mean, talk about a violent contrast. On paper, anyone would say to this man, he is not blessed. He is what? Cursed. I don't want that life. How could such a man suffer like this? But moreover, the violent contrast is highlighted by the location of where Lazarus lays. What separates these two men is a gate. The rich man on the other side has a palace. But on the other side is poor Lazarus. 
The imagery here is shocking. While they were so close in proximity, they were so different. This rich man feasts inside. Lazarus is hungry for crumbs. The rich man is in fine purple linen, feeling good, while Lazarus is covered in sores. This rich man is living it up on a daily basis, while Lazarus is suffering with dogs licking his sores. This was their life on earth. This is how they lived on a daily basis. Now, let's not be mistaken here. What is the focus here is not so much on the amount of things that either of them had or didn't have. The parable is not suggesting that we all be poor. However, the focus is the question of what we saw in the context. Who do you serve? Who do you depend upon? Who do you live for? That is the focus. And for the rich man, it becomes clear. He was one who served self. He served self. Everything about his life was self-oriented. His glory, his kingdom, his best life now. But as you and I know, despite whatever kind of life any person lives on earth, with whatever circumstances, whether good or bad, we also know that part of life is the end of it. Death is the great equalizer. The poor man and the rich man are both buried in the ground. Every person in this world, young or old, rich or poor, prospering or suffering, will one day end up in the same ground. And no atheist nor any person here in this room can deny that. Despite how much you think you are in control of your life, Not only do you not know when that day will come, you cannot avoid that day that is surely to come. It cannot be avoided. That is why one of the most sobering places is the funeral. We find people contemplating life, the brevity of life, and even the purpose of life. Uh, Just about a month ago, I had a friend. He has two young daughters, and out of nowhere, he had a heart aneurysm. Just died. Who can fathom these things? Well, the rich man and the poor man have both died. It doesn't give us the details how they died. But we do know for certain that when people die, they take nothing with them to the grave. They don't take their trials with them to the grave. They don't take their riches with them to the grave. Naked we come, naked we go. It all passes away. Back in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon also talks about how even the things we possess in this world, they are not ours as well. Right? Maybe some of you are hoping to buy a property soon. Well, even that property you desire to have is not even truly yours. The cycle goes on where it gets passed down to the next and to the next and to the next. In fact, verse 18 of Ecclesiastes says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. So even the things we want to prepare for our children, they will not even truly be theirs. Point being nothing, nothing in this world is truly ours. Clothes, 
possessions, all of it. And what a sobering reminder that is when we consider the materials we possess. None of it is truly ours. Moreover, Scripture is clear that upon one's death, there then awaits eternity. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Meaning when people come to die, it's not that people are annihilated or just go out of existence as some cults believe, but rather judgment is at hand. And when we speak of eternity, this concept of eternity is just too beyond us to fathom. Pastor Mark referenced it yesterday at night. How can we fathom eternity? But scripture is very clear. Death was the result of man's sin. And so upon man's limited life now here on earth, there awaits for us eternity. And sinners will either go to one of two places, either hell to face the wrath they deserve or to heaven by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And again, let me repeat, that is forever. There is no end to that timeline. In fact, even if we were given one million years, it is a speck in comparison to eternity. That is all somewhere we are headed, friends. Something we should think about. And it is from here now we turn to our second point. From life on earth to life in eternity. What happens to these two men? And here is the shocking reversal. Look at verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now notice here for Lazarus, there is not mentioned a proper burial. In fact, back during this time, right below the city of Jerusalem was this valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was here in this valley where dirty waste and even gross carcasses, carcasses like him, they would say, they would just be thrown away when they died. And it was for this reason people called this place Gehenna. Gehenna. And when scripture often speaks of Gehenna, it is a term used to describe hell, the place of the dead. Meaning, This place was so wretched and filthy that it is where God saw fit to use as a picture or an illustration of hell, the hell that sinners deserve. See, this is where Lazarus was most likely thrown when he died. A waste like him did not deserve a burial. He was thrown into the dumps. But regardless, in a true and spiritual sense, despite being thrown in Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, he is not going to the Gehenna that refers to hell. For as we see here, he was carried by the angels to where? To Abraham's bosom. And what is that, you might ask? What is Abraham's bosom? For any Jew to hear this, they automatically understood this as synonymous of heaven. For Abraham was their father, the father of Israel. And so to be in his bosom is to be right next to him in intimate fellowship, to join him where he now abides, which is heaven. Poor, pathetic Lazarus, as he's dumped into this valley, he is 
brought to heaven, to the joy of heaven. What a contrast. Now, let's not be mistaken here. I just want to say again, it is not a godly thing to be poor or suffering. This is not what gained approval by God in the case of Lazarus. Like there have been many movements who genuinely taught people to sell everything, that to be poor is to be godly. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, Scripture even tells us that Abraham was a man who had much riches. So I love that because he is also clearly in heaven. So we don't have to try to be poor and suffer like Lazarus. That's not the point here. But what Lazarus then demonstrates is someone who even despite his earthly and difficult circumstances, he trusted in God. He depended upon God, like his name. And he most certainly had faith in God. Now, it is important to know that despite these realities of Lazarus, you'll notice that in this parable, there's not much stated about Lazarus. Why? Because again, the context, Jesus is teaching this to the Pharisees. So the focus is more on the rich man and the judgment he deserves. So let's focus now on the rich man, which is the emphasis and climax of the whole story. What happened to the rich man? Notice at the end of verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. Most likely he had a proper burial. I'm sure many people attended his funeral. People probably wept at the blessed life that came to an end. But beloved, does having a proper funeral service really matter? Does it matter how glittery, how many people show up to your funeral to be recognized men even in death? None of that matters. Why? Because it does not change your eternal destiny. People can hype you up all day at your funeral, but it does not change your destiny. As it says in verse 23, he is in Hades. He is in hell. Talk about a reversal here. Once so prosperous and so wealthy, but now he is the one suffering. And such a picture like this must have shattered the mindset of the money-serving Pharisees. They probably thought that guy was the blessed guy. He's the one that God loved. He's the one that was approved by God, which is why he had all these riches. But Jesus makes clear, this does not gain God's approval. The way he lived only gains God's condemnation upon this man. In fact, notice the fearful realities of what this man is facing. Look at verse 23 in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And this term torment can simply define as one undergoing torture. And in the Greek, we will see that this term is not a singular uh, noun, but it is a plural, which denotes that this torture he is receiving is coming from not just one angle, but all different angles. 
Jesus often spoke of hell as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where there's an eternal fire. And for this rich man, he is in severe pain. And so it's in his pain. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. And verse 23, it says he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Here we find this rich man who is in hell calling Abraham father. Now, why? Because Abraham was the father of the Jews. And surely for the Jews, what they mistake, what they, what they made such a big mistake was where they believed that just by being a part of his lineage, that they were children of God, that they were the people of God. They were people of faith. They thought that simply to be associated with Abraham by family lineage, they were the people of promise. So, of course, he's calling him father. But do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8 when they boasted that they were sons of Abraham? He says, you're not sons of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And your will to do, your will is to do your father's desires. The point being, Family lineage does not mean you become a person of faith. Uh, You need faith in Jesus. The rich man did not have this, but regardless, he cries to Abraham, have mercy on me. And speaking of mercy, this is so significant. Think about as well when it comes to hell. Because notice this rich man is not even pleading for his case. He is not arguing that this is not what he deserves. He's not telling God you made a mistake. He simply cries out for mercy. He is pleading for help. Which also must be noted, friends, that this is the greater painful reality of hell. It's not just the physical torment and wrath, but also in hell, the greater torment is the greater guilt that you have that presses upon you understanding that this is what you deserve. So hell is suffering both physically and mentally. The rich man cries out, have mercy upon me. And then notice his request. He says, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. He is in such torment. He simply longs for a drop of water. And from who? The guy who always laid at his gate. The guy he would not even give a crumb to. We cannot fully express the pain that he's facing. But clearly he needs some kind of cooling. This agony is too extreme. And beloved, the reversal could not be more staggering. Because while Lazarus enjoys the great blessings of heaven... This rich man is suffering in great agony. And he seeks the aid of Lazarus. But what then is Abraham's reply? Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, child. And he simply calls him child simply for his racial heritage. He says, remember that your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Or in other words, this is your judgment. You got what you wanted. You lived for self. You lived comfortably on the earth. 
but now you are in agony. This is the consequence of your sin, your sin-saturated life. Lazarus, on the other hand, he received that which was bad on the earth. but He now receives the blessings of eternity. Surely Lazarus didn't live for self. He didn't live for prosperity. He was simply dependent upon God, and he is now in the joy of heaven. And just want to say a side comment about Lazarus. Church, how encouraging Lazarus should be to us, especially if some of you here today are going through a difficult time. I don't know what you are all facing today. Maybe there's some difficult trial or circumstance that you seem that you feel like no one can sympathize with or understand that you are suffering with this, this difficulty and it seems to not go away. Beloved, if you are in Christ, what you are facing now, just as it did for Lazarus, it is a literal speck in comparison to what awaits you. And that's what Paul said in Romans 8.18. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So be encouraged. Press on. Keep depending upon God. Because glory awaits. Your home is not here. Your home is in heaven. Look forward to there. Point being, my earthly circumstances does not affect my eternal destiny. Even if cancer, even if illness or even financial difficulties come, we don't measure success based upon circumstances, but rather faithfulness to serve the Lord. That is the focus. Am I serving him? Am I faithful to him? And this was Lazarus plagued with earthly Difficulties, yet he depended, he depended upon God. But the rich man, what a warning this should be. Not because he was in hell, because he was rich, but the sin that was so grave here was the misuse of his riches. And the misuse of it revealed he served not God, but served himself. He was consumed with self his joy, his leisure, his celebration. He did not serve God. And at the end of the day, the rich man is a picture of the Pharisees who totally got the scriptures wrong, who, yes, served God on the outside, but at the end of the day, they hated God because they served money. You know, in the parable, it becomes clear that the rich man, he he knew the Bible. I mean, he, he cried out to Abraham. He was probably orthodox in his doctrine. He probably was convinced as he lived daily that he was blessed by God. But how he stewarded his life proved otherwise. He was not on a path to heaven, but to hell. Now, if the indictment could not get any more serious and worse, Jesus continues. Notice further what Abraham tells the rich man. Look at verse 26. Besides all this, Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. What is Abraham saying here? When it says the great chasm here, this is simply referring to a great separation. That there is a gap, and it's fixed. And there's no crossing from us to you or you to us. 
Where Abraham resides, which is heaven, in the place of torture and hell. Abraham is saying that the book is closed. Hell and heaven are fixed. They are eternally separated. In other words, once you are dead and you step into eternity, that is forever. And if you are in hell, it is too late. There is no way for you to leave hell, to escape it. There is no purgatory. There is no buying your way out with money or offering good works. No, in hell, there is no more grace offered, no more mercy revealed, no more way to be right with God. Friends, that door is eternally shut. There is no escaping that fire. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, worst of all, there is no hope of relief for hell's inhabitants who have no rest day and night. Their sentence is eternal. Their punishment never ending. The fire of hell is unquenchable and will never cease to burn since it is everlasting. When man steps into eternity, the great chasm is fixed. It is set forever. Which is why if there's anyone who is not a believer here today, this is why we preach the gospel. And this is why we are so urgent whenever you are here. Because while there is breath in your lungs, there is still time. And there is a way to be right with God. You can flee the wrath now. And God has made a way of escape of the judgment that is to come. And that way is his son, the Lord Jesus. Christ came and lived the perfect life you couldn't. And he went upon the cross to bear the wrath that you deserve. And on the cross, he was crushed by the father. He died and he was buried. And three days later, he rose again and he conquered death and sin once and for all. So that if you just repent and trust in him, if you surrender your life and say, I trust in him. You can be saved from this wrath and be in heaven for eternity. The urgency of this message is now. Now must be the day of salvation. It is not worth to keep putting this off any longer. Who knows when that day will come? The bridge is here. Call upon Christ and you can be saved. There is urgency in the gospel and there's urgency in how we live for him, which is why believers here today, what greater urgency is there in evaluating our hearts, in evaluating our lives? I'm so thankful for, again, our time today or this weekend just talking about stewardship. But if we think about the realities of heaven and hell, we must ask ourselves, who are we serving? Who are we serving today? We need continual reminders of the fierce realities of hell. We can be like the Pharisees who appear religious on the outside and think ourselves good and right with God. But on the inside, we are dominated by the things of this world. But as we see in this passage, if we love God, We must serve him. As I close, let me just give you three applications. Three applications in light of this passage. Number one. Number one, pray. So simple, but always so profound. Pray. 
I think in light of this passage, I'm always thankful because I know that I am unfaithful, but Christ is faithful. That he is the one who holds me fast. He is the one who's leading us, shepherding us. He will take us to glory. So be comforted, Christian, though we fail, Christ does not fail. So let's pray in a heart of thankfulness to Christ, but also in thankfulness to him. Pray and ask, God, search my heart. Lord, is my heart dominated by something else other than you? Help me to steward my time, my resources, my job, my family, all these things for you. Pray that God give you a a greater zeal to know him and to love him so that you would only naturally desire to use your life for him. So pray, pray daily for that reminder, even as you go to work, even as you go and Wake up and the kids are screaming. (laughs) Pray, God, help me to steward my life for you. Second, be resolved to live in light of eternity. Be resolved to live in light of eternity. Consider the realities of hell. Meditate upon it, but also consider the realities of heaven. Consider where you, Christian, are heading. And consider your possessions in light of that. Consider the treasures that ultimately matter. If we think about that, it is worth it to live for him, right? It is so worth it to use our lives for him. And to one day hear those words from our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. I do also want to say this does not be miserable. Uh, Living in light of eternity doesn't mean be miserable and be poor. I think as believers, we enjoy life the best. We love life because the life that we have is given by God. And every good gift comes from God. And we can enjoy the life that God has given us in light of eternity. Treasuring even that much more, that which God has given us and entrusted to us. So let's enjoy life, but also remember what's ahead. Number three, lastly, know the word and preach the word. Know the word and preach the word. Maybe you're wondering, how does this passage end? I don't have the time to look at this in detail, but let's look at verse 27 real quick. And I'll close with this. This is upon Abraham saying there's a great chasm fixed. And then verse 27, the rich man responds and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. So he wants Lazarus to warn his brothers. So that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Uh, That being, they have the word of God. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And, And you can see his protest here because he had the word. 
And he's probably thinking, that's not enough. They need a miracle. They need to see someone rise from the dead. But verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What is the point of this? What is this saying? The word is sufficient. The word is sufficient to reveal and to save. And what people need today, what our, what our loved ones need to hear today is the proclamation of the gospel, is the word of God that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. What people need to hear today is Christ. We have been given the word. We have been saved by the word. Let us now steward that word by proclaiming it to those who do not know Christ. Let's do that faithfully. Let's steward our lives faithfully for his honor and his glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this sober reminder a truth that I'm sure we all know but can so easily forget. Thank you, O God, for the power of the gospel that saves those who are on a pathway to hell to now have life eternal in joy with you. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for the calling you have given to each of us that the new life that you have given us is for you. All that we have is yours, O God. And we are headed towards a day of glory. Help us, Lord, to steward well the things you have entrusted to us. Help us to live in light of these glorious truths. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you who is always so faithful to us. So thank you, God, for your great faithfulness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.